Welcome back, Oscar fans. This is Jake. Thanks for tuning back into the OCC. Obviously, this is an Oscar podcast, but I could only dream of getting as close to the big show as our guest today. Mark London Williams has been covering the Oscars for the last 10 years uh, with outlets such as Below the Line. He currently writes for British Cinematographer and the credits. Mark, thank you very much for joining the OCC to share uh, what's going to be, I think, a pretty cool story today. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here and maybe help uh, demystify a little bit of the, uh, you know, the Oscar process and go a little bit behind the scenes with people. Very eager to dive into the the actuals of the show and, and your experience there. But just as some background, how, how did you come to, to find yourself covering the Oscars and, and attending the, the show every year? It really started with with my own um, sort of hopes and dreams as the as a younger man, a younger writer. Coming to L.A., I grew up in Northern California, so it wasn't. It was just a matter of going down the I-5, and I had, you know, cousins here and couches, so it was. A, I could make the move fairly easily. And I thought about you know writing scripts and things like that. And I was working as a playwright. I'd been. I was a young playwright. And I had some plays produced, and I was a theater company here in L.A. And a friend of mine from another part of my life, another contact, come to see a a play of mine, and he had been a, like a math and computer major, and this is back in the 90s, and he was um, he was in the early days of the video game industry. He was a producer. He's no longer in video games, but at the time he was, he'd seen a play, and um, he liked my dialogue, happily enough, and said, hey, would I, wanna, would I be interested in coming in to work on some video game scripts? Because they needed, the, the, the industry was starting to take off, and they wanted, they started, it was their first awareness that maybe they, you know, people should not always sound like robots because they had just computer programmers writing this dialogue, kind of the way they program stuff, and they, they didn't have writer writers yet. So I came in and worked on some scripts, you know, an early version of Aliens versus Predator and things like that. And then, um, then I, then I, you know, which was great, and that led to some early gigs writing about video games on when they were on CD-ROMs because there was this perception. Because I worked in technology as a writer, I, I knew about it. I could, I could explain it to people. And I had some other writer friends that got some gigs that way. And then I was in grad school, and another friend um, from grad school who had been, he was covering what was the then new internet. This will seem kind of funny to your younger listeners who grew up with the internet, but this was at the dawn of the internet, sort of mid '90s. And he was working with a computer mag because there weren't any like other publications dedicated to cover internet yet and that got him hired the uh you know the famous showbiz which used daily used to be a daily newspaper back when there were papers on and the irony is of course all these print publications were covering the internet which would eventually the model would of course end their life basically as print publications and they would wind up existing on the internet as variety now does primarily um so then he asked if I'd be interested in freelancing at Variety, and because I, uh, but this time I'd work online a little bit. I'd worked, I'd worked for Amazon before anybody knew what it was, doing early book reviews before they had user content. So again, there was this perception. I'd written video games. I, I worked online, and, and, and so I, I must know about technology. And some of my early assignments for Variety were trying to were about explaining this new, this budding technology. To people in addition to occasionally interviewing you know actors and, and directors and kind of the fun glitzy stuff which was, was fun you know you're on the phone with 
people whose movies you've grown up with and suddenly you're talking to them and that's a pretty fun gig. So I'm doing all this freelancing for Variety. That leads to eventually me being offered an editorship of a magazine, which is also about technology. It's specifically about the intersection of show business and this new, this then new technology, the internet. It was a little ahead of its time because this was before Netflix or any of those things. So this magazine was probably launched about seven or eight years too early. And it eventually folded when the internet went bust. But by now I had all these writing credits in showbiz and technology. And I, so I was, even though when the magazine went bust, then I wound up becoming a columnist for, uh, for Below the Line, um, which, is, which is sort of Hollywood slang for people, for behind the scenes people, you know, crew, everybody who's not like an actor or in front of the camera. Um, and it comes from when they used to type up budgets on typewriters, speaking of old technology, and they would type um, two lines across the page, and above the line would be actors and producers, directors, and below the line would be composers and cinematographers and costume designers and everyone else who made the movie come alive, right? So because of my technology background, I'm, I, I write a lot about visual effects for v below the line, among other things, and cinematography and production design, things I still write about. And, and as visual effects got more and more uh, digital, digitized, um, you know, I started to, I started to, um, this coincided with me not only getting to know the visual effects industry, but then starting to cover their award show, which is called the, um, or the VES, the Visual Effects Society. And as some of your uh, listeners may know, even though the Oscars kind of culminates award season here in LA, or at least it used to before, uh, before these plague times, who knows what'll happen next spring, but most guilds, um, will award, they have their own award shows. I mean, the f most famous of these is the SAG Awards. That's because everybody knows who actors are, so they get on TV. But, you know, costume designers, cinematographers, they have a very good, award, a nice award show. I write a lot about cinematography now, as you might suspect, being a columnist for British cinematographer. They have a pretty great function. Visual effects people, production design, uh, sound, you know, editors have, a, have an award show. Camera operators, location managers, everybody has an award show. So I started to cover more and more of these below the line award shows um, for below the line. You know, I, we kind of divvied up and I, there's, there's so many award shows before the Oscars. And so I, I became kind of known. I was just one of the correspondents in this circuit. And then so eventually the, the, the more senior writer who had been covering the Oscars, uh, they kind of reassigned him. And I was sort of next batter up, and they asked me if I'd like to. It was kind of a rhetorical question. Do you want to do you want to cover the Oscars? I'd say yes. <laughs> and so when I started to go, but the difference is, and where I'm, you know, grateful. I won't. There are many reasons to be grateful, but I originally got there because they knew the publication. In other words, they had a seat in what's called the interview room, which is you know back. It's sort of backstage. It's where they go from the ballroom, and they, it's actually in a ho It's in the hotel next door, you know, to the Dolby Theater, um, and it's where all, all the, the press people are in their tuxedos, and you know, it's where I break out my tuxedo. Uh, your tuxedos are evening gowns, or I guess whatever combination thereof somebody wants to wear now. But you're there in formal wear, and the reason I, I originally got in there was because the, they knew the publication. They didn't know me, but now I've been doing it so long that when I had you know, an amicable parting with the publication because, you know, times change and advertisers come and go and budgets change. 
Um, so now I'm writing for other publications. So I, when I reapplied to cover the Oscars for my new publication, they already knew who I was. There's not a lot, like a lot of the Oscar publicist people have been there for years as well. So when I said, hey, it's Mark, I'm with a new publication, I didn't know if they'd let me back in, but they did. So I've been, you know, so now I'm continuing to cover it for these other publications by virtue of the fact I've been doing it for several years for Below the Line. So it's really, as I, as I mentioned to you earlier before we recorded, it's just a sort of series of fortuitously opening doors that really kind of started at the genesis of like being a playwright and then going into video games and it's things as things kept leading to other things uh it wound up me being you know an oscar correspondent many years later so you, you know you talked about kind of demystifying yes the oscars and this is obviously a glamorous glitzy show that you know kind of once a year everybody tunes in and they watch the red carpet and if you're kind of crazy right. like me maybe you follow it a little more closely but what is the experience if you're kind of behind the scenes it's oscar night you know you've been through this a number of times what what is that kind of TikTok like on oscar day for you well it's again when you work the oscars when you work it it's much less glamorous than when you watch it on tv like you have to get there early to check in and it's, it's, they have, the security is tighter even than going on an airplane. You have like two metal detectors and bag checks to get to the press room. You got to get there pretty early ahead of the broadcast at 5.30. And I, so I get there around 2.30 or 3, and there's usually a couple hours. But, but they feed you. There's like a big buffet backstage, and you kind of you, you get to you, you know people. Some of your friends are there. But you're, not, you're away. You're not in the arrivals. In other words, there's a working press person who's not covering the red carpet. And that's a separate credential. Like the people on ABC, Robin Givens, whoever, whoever you know it is uh, that you might see covering the red carpet with a mic in their hand, those are different. You know, the on-screen on TV personalities. And if you get there early enough, but they, you, can, you can kind of wander around the red carpet. I've been on the red carpet like a couple hours ahead of broadcast. But then there's a certain, you got to, if you don't have the right credential, you have to leave. Yeah. And go to where you're, and go through your security check, and you got it. And then you're just kind of sitting, waiting for the show to. Start. I mean, it's they're feeding you, and you're chit chatting, but you're backstage. You're not you're not hanging out with any of the actors or anything. And by the way, I do know people. You know, in the front of the house, as as we call it, the front of the house, which is what everybody sees on TV. You're really only seeing that bottom floor of the Oscars, where everybody, you know, where everybody like where Brad Pitt and is doing a selfie with. Ellen DeGeneres, where all that stuff happens, um, you know, and I'm not involved in any of the selfie stuff, but, but even people who are members of the Academy or invited, like, you know, other agents, producers, less famous people who are in the Academy who are sitting in, on, like, the second and third floor who are not in the shot, most of them, a lot of them, actually do not sit in their seats to watch the Oscars on the stage below. What most of them are doing is they are at one of the mezzanine bars in the building um, because they have all these monitors and they're just, it's, it's more, um, it makes more business sense for them to be at the bar talking to their colleagues and watching the Oscars on, on the short, you know, the closed circuit than to be downstairs and watching it. If you're not on the first floor, if you're not in that mm. the shot on ABC. So even people in the front of the house, it's not quite as glamorous necessarily as you might think, unless you're already like, you know, in that, you're one of the people you're famous enough to be in you're nominated and you're on tv i mean i'm not saying it's not fun but it's not like 
people tend to think that sort of it can be life changing just to be there. I mean, and I'm remembering even I think Steve Tessich was Steve Tessich, who was a writer who has since passed away, who wrote a film, gosh, from the 70s called Breaking Away about bicycle racers. And it was a best original screenplay. He won a best original screenplay Oscar. He'd been a playwright too. And people asked him, he said, you know, going to the he was going to the Oscars, he goes, it's a great weekend. It, it makes for a great weekend, but it doesn't change your life, is what it was his perspective. I mean, kind of life goes on. And you know, so so when you're working it, it's a little bit different than than walking down the red carpet and you know, people in the stands that's just you know wanting your autograph. You're there, and you got to get ready to do a job. And the photographers are there, and they have their own room, and there's video crews. And when you're when you're behind the red carpet, it's very interesting. Actually, you get to see all the cables and you know all the, the porta potties and stuff. It's huge. It's a huge production here in LA to set it up. And the streets, you know, that in Hollywood, they're closed off for about a week. And usually, you have to go. You go a few days early if you're in town, because there's a lot of people who come from all around the world. But if you're local or you're here already, you go and they give you, they usually give you a tour, um, which is most helpful if you're new. I mean, not a lot of information changes. And then they tell you where the shuttles are from the parking lot, all this kind of practical stuff just to get you in your seat so that you're there by the time the Oscar broadcast starts. Yeah, so my past life, I worked in sports marketing. And so like I've Mm -hmm. worked at Super Bowl. I've been to Uh the World Series. And, you know, it's like, the fifth or sixth time you're sort of there to do your job and, and right. you're used to it. Right. What about that first time though? It, yeah. You had to feel some of the magic the first time you lost oh, yeah. in there. No, it was kind of amazing. And the, I, you know, and I, and I used to, um, but knowing where the real power was, I used to spend more time trying to get to the, the after parties because, but where the, where the real sort of business happens on Oscar night in Hollywood, it's not necessarily at the Oscars, but it's at you know sort of the pecking order of the various parties, and the most you know the most alethy uh, of those is of course the Vanity Fair. The Vanity Fair party is probably more of a Hollywood power stop than even the Governor's Ball, which is the Academy's own. That's the Academy's own party after the Oscars. And by the way, they don't automatically invite any of us press people to the Governor's Ball. It's not like we get to go and hang out afterwards either. At, in fact, very few. There's some correspondents because they're so famous. A couple of my colleagues, they do get to go, but I'm, I haven't. I don't quite rank up there yet. But I have been invited to some other receptions here and there. You know, the year that um, the King's Speech won. I mean, Miramax, because Harry Weinstein is, you know, uh, out of favor for, you know, good reason, given what he's done. But uh, I, I went to a couple. There were a couple years in a row where I wound up at the Miramax party when they had won the Best Picture Oscar. But the funny thing was, like, I had this memory. I was at the Miramax party after the Oscars for the year that, uh, was it The Artist? The silent movie. You know, the yeah. silent movie, Best Picture. The Artist. And I was there, and it was at another hotel on Sunset Boulevard. And I'm talking to this TV actor who I knew. Um, and his co- colleagues of his had just won a screenplay. And they, I said, hey, your friends texted you? Because I talked to him the year before at the Miramax party. And it was a show I'd watched. So that's kind of fun. You get, like a guy you watched on a show, and now you're sort of chit chatting. And he goes, "Hey, you're," and I knew he knew these people. I said, "Your friends just won a screenplay Oscar." And they said, "Really?" I said, "I was just there." He said, "Oh, I'm going to go text them right now." I said, "Okay." Um, but what you notice, what I noticed, is here I'm at the party of 
the company that just they just won the best picture Oscar and everybody is like checking their phones. I mean, like, and even within the room, not only are people sort of checking their phones, trying to figure out, like, is this the best place to be? But even at these parties, there's like velvet rope. There's like there's like a party within the party. So even even as hard as it is to get in the party, there's like a, another VIP area inside the party. I mean, so it's all these weird pecking orders. And, you know, you sit there and have a meal. And in those days, I had to, um, when I was, I was below the line, and I, I needed to get my Oscar coverage online by the next morning. So however late I stayed out, I had to stay up <laughs> and write the article. So I had to kind of pace myself, and I usually wouldn't get to bed till dawn. <laughs> then I'd wake up, and my article would be online, and I could see if it was coherent. Now I have, you know, now that I'm a columnist and I have time, I can digest it, and it's just part of my monthly column. It's, it's a lot easier. But at the same time, and I was a function of being older, I'm, I'm a little less uh, driven about getting into parties. I mean, if you know, I get invited to something interesting, that's great. But, um, but yeah, the first I would say the first two or three years, I thought, ooh, I got to be I got to be part of the scene like all night. I just got to you know, find out what's going on after. And then you go to a few of these. It's like okay, <laughs> it's like it's like all the other Hollywood parties in a way. I would love a couple of minutes on the spread at the Miramax party after they won the best Oscar. That's got to be a decent selection, huh? You know, it, it's again like the, the King's Speech year. It was so crowded. By the time, and the other thing is, if you're a press guy or gal, you're you're very late getting to these places because after the Oscar ends, you're in the press room for about another hour, and that's because what you're really covering is not the show live, but the people who win, not the nominees, but everyone who wins comes backstage for a Q and A. From I mean, from you know the sound mixers to the animated film piece, short people, all the way up, of course, you know, best actor, actress, and the producers of the best picture at the end of the evening. But usually they're so far behind, and because of course they have to wait for all these lovely people to make their speeches on stage and be on TV, it takes them a while to get them backstage. So as a press folk, you don't even get you don't really get to leave until about an hour after the thing is over. So then by the time you park and get into a party, um, You'd be surprised. A lot of the food sometimes is gobbled up. Everything's um, picked they're, over. Yeah, they're very crowded. So, like, I was at a couple of these Miramax parties. The, the King's Speech one was really crowded. And I was, um, you know, you go into a bath. There's Jeff, Jeffrey Rush, who won that. Yeah, I go to the bathroom, and there's Jeffrey Rush, because this is on a hillside above Sunset, and he's trying to get a signal for his cell phone. And he's looking at his cell phone, perched by this window. And I said, and I'm looking at him behind him, and go, hey, uh, congratulations! Goes, oh, thank you. As you were, I mean, almost kind of surreal, you know, these little tableaus that you have. Um, but yes, but usually there can be enormous crowds uh, queuing at the bar, and it's not quite the free flow. I mean, there's good nosh. I think the second year, the artist year was a little better because there was a bigger hotel and they had food stations. And I seem to remember there were some good ice cream treats at that one. Actually, now that now that we're talking about it, but all right, I'll take that. Well, I'm interested. So, you know, we co- I cover quite a bit of below the line categories myself on this show. I think that's kind of one of my objectives is to mm-hmm. shine a little bit more light on the some of the categories that maybe don't get as much attention. When you show up for, let's say, British Cinematographer, 
what is your charge, I guess, like in covering the Oscars? Are, are you just looking to kind of get sound bites from, from the winners or do you have news that you're kind of angling after? Like sort of what, what do you go in to accomplish each night during the actual Oscar backstage coverage? Well, you're right. I mean, now that, now that I'm doing the column for British cinematography, I don't, and even though I, you know, I will talk to nominees sometimes for the credits during award season, but I don't cover the Oscars per se for them. But okay. what I do, I usually have a column where I, I have a couple of columns for British cinematographer where I'm doing a wrap up of award season, which also includes indie spirit. And I guess the other thing I should say, almost as interesting as the Oscars in its own way are the indie spirit awards, which happened the day before, you know, in a tent on the beach in Santa Monica during the afternoon. And, you, and sometimes you can, See, sometimes it's the same films, sometimes it's completely different films. Um, so you have this kind of starting from indie spirit on Saturday, then leading all the way to Oscars on Sunday. You have this set of culmination of award season. So I'm looking for, of course, cinematographers as one might expect, but also patterns of, and, and I'll, you know, I kind of open up the column a bit during award season and, you know, we'll get some good, if an editor, a production designer, if she has a good quote, you know, I'll put that in. Um, when I do my award roundup, but it clearly behooves me to talk to the Oscar-winning cinematographer each day. And so far, I've been lucky, or at least, are they remember? They're kind enough to remember who I'm writing for. Because what happens? It's almost like being at an auction. You have a number at your seat, you know, number, and they go into the hundreds. Number three hundred two, number eighty-eight, number uh, number twelve, and you hold up your card if you want to ask whoever it is at the dais, you know, who they a question. And as you might expect, uh, like there are very few people who ask, for example, sound editors or sound mixers questions. And in fact, even on years when I'm not going to be writing about the sound mixers, because I'm mostly doing, like, I'll look around the room and these, these guys, and, and in that category, it's mostly guys. Sometimes it's women, although women are better represented, in, you know, in production design and a little bit in cinematography. So sound mixers are mostly guys still, um, not exclusively anymore. Actually, that is starting to change too, but. So whoever's at the DS, uh, you look around, nobody's asking them a question. Sometimes I'll just, because I used to do that when I was with Below the Line, I'll, I'll just ask them a question, almost like, you know, I'll just keep the conversation. Like, I look around at these people, I say, come on, guys, you don't have any? And I just think, don't you have a question for me? And I'll just ask them a question, just to ask them a question, you know. And because I'm one of, like, three people asking them a question. As you get later in the evening, more hands go up as the more, as people become, sort of more famous. And by the time the, the actors are there, it's, you know, you have long odds. But, like, for example, when, when Roger Deakins won again for 1917, he's he now become so famous after winning for both Blade Runner and he had stuff to do. So they brought him backstage and they said, Roger can only take two questions. Then we have to bring him back out to the house, front of the house for the broadcast. I said, oh, gee, and a bunch of hands went up. But I was one of the two questions. Either they remembered or I got lucky. And, you know, so they called on me. I was the second and the second and last question. And that becomes part of my column, you know. So sometimes if you have a specialty, you can remind them, like, I really need to ask this nominee a question because that's my beat. You know, or if you're a foreign press, they're actually really good. Like if you're you know, from Italy and there's a winner from Italy or you're from Argentina, you know, or Mexico, because we have a lot of you know, directors from Mexico, one, of course, or cinematographers. If you're Spanish language. And you need that specifically for your assignment. If you remind the person who kind of runs the Q&A backstage, they're actually usually pretty good if you let them know. 
what your beat is. Like if you have a specific nominee or, you know, if there's a specific storyline you're after. So I imagine in 10 years in the back room, there must be some moments that jump out as, as memorable or pretty funny. Do you have any stories to share from, from the press room? Gosh, I mean, they don't, first of all, there's no, I talk about the mezzanine bars in the front of the house. There's no alcohol and understandably and probably wisely so in the back of the house. So there's none of those kind of stories of like somebody getting too snock or anything like that. Probably understandably the the one that really leaps to mind because it was so unusual was of course the whole snafu between La La Land and Moonlighting. Mm. And the evening had wrapped up and then we have, there's kind of these long tables that are at each seat's kind of numbered and there's, there's open seating in the front of the room. And then if you have to use a laptop and you can get, and they assign you the space, there's these longer tables where most of the publications are. And I was at one of the tables that year and I was, and across from me actually was a, a woman from uh, BET, Black Entertainment Television. And we both had wanted Moonlighting to win, not knowing that it would. And this, they announced, you know, La La Land and, it was like, because we looked at the monitors, there's all these monitors backstage, so you can keep track of the broadcast. But you can only, but you only, you have earbuds for the sound. In other words, because people have to do Q&A, if you want to listen to the broad, like if you're not interested in the, the sound mixer or the animated short, and then you can put your earbud in, you can listen to the broadcast if that's what you want to do until, so. so. But then at the end of the evening, so now they turned the speakers on because there were no, we're going to wait for the best picture end. They say La La Land, and so she and I were talking about how disappointed we each were, and the way it was set up is I was facing her, and behind her was one of these monitors. So we're talking, and then I see, like, there's a snafu, and I look, and I don't have my bud in exact the bud, but uh, I think that I could hear from the speaker, the guy was saying, no, moonlighting, you won, you won, if you remember that moment, and I'm like, what? And so she's still talking to me, because she's faced away, and I start to point. Like she looks like, without being rude, I, I, like I point over her shoulder. She goes, she starts looking at me. I said, look, look, and I keep pointing at the TV behind her without saying anything. And then she turns around and then we, it's kind of dawning on us and it's dawning on everybody in the room at the same time, like what happened? Um, so that, you know, and we were all kind of, that was, everybody was astonished, equally astonished. And then none of us could, and then, you, I mean, you talk about not being able to wait to get a question in. I think I was one of the hundreds did not get called on. So that, of course, was memorable. But I would say in a more general sense, as opposed to like a great party story of like someone falling on the train of their dress or those kinds of stories, what, what has really been continually interesting and what I'm grateful for is that the nominees backstage are almost always more interesting than they are during the broadcast because they're not cut off by the best by the band so there have been some great like viola davis i still remember how impassioned uh, and insightful like her comments were with the year she won uh alejandro inaritu when he your best director a couple of his speeches chivo when he won best cinematography for three years in a row, cinematography I mean, so there are actually some speeches i remember the year that mad max fury road um i gotta forget her name the production designer and the costume who had lived together in Africa on the set and just how delighted and surprised they were to win. So, so the, a lot of the moments I remember are just because you're in a room with one of the, and, and they're able to talk without being cut off and it becomes much more, as I say, much more engaging 
and suddenly you're kind of at this seminar of somebody with somebody who just won an Oscar, and they're able to talk about their craft for a few minutes, you know, without, and that becomes really, I mean, I find that having grown up as a film fan myself and having grown up, you know, watching Oscar broadcasts, little thinking I'd be covering them. Um, to me, that always strikes me as maybe the best, the best thing about it is you have this sort of more interesting alternative Oscars backstage, really. So some of the, some of the people that you've probably come across then in the last 10 years, you know, I'll start with someone that we lost this year, Kobe Bryant. Did he yes. come backstage for his animation? Yes, actually, that's right. Kobe, and that, that's, God, I'm feeling wistful now. And I thought of that, actually, when I, the, that Sunday when I read that he passed, when I remember seeing those, those uh, bulletins, he was quite grateful. I think I might have posted in my Twitter, because you can do that. You, know, you can, a lot of people are posting, doing live, you know, live tweets and stuff, and I do a little of that. But um, he was quite uh, gracious, and he came backstage and he talked about this new business where now he has to learn. He has to learn from other professionals. You know, he's not. He recognized that this wasn't like. I'm paraphrasing here, but he recognized that this was not his game now. But he was privileged to kind of be able to do it. You know, he was here to learn from well, not us like press, but all of us in sort of the broader Hollywood sense. And he was looking forward. And that's what makes that's what just sort of amplifies the sadness of the loss. It really, because he he'd enjoyed making that short and he, he'd found this new passion and he was looking forward to learning more about about this, uh, this creative outlet. And, uh, you know, everyone in the room, including him, had every reason to think he'd be he'd be backstage again uh, with some other project. Yeah, obviously terrible, terrible loss there. But it sounds like a like a really interesting experience. Other ones to jump out, 2012, you had Daniel Day-Lewis. Was he talking like well, Abraham think, Lincoln still? Or I don't think he came. No, I, not everybody agrees to come backstage, by the way. That's the other okay. thing. Not every, And, you know, I mean, if they're even at the Oscars at all, but they don't necessarily. Did the majority of people come? Yeah. But not everybody. Not everybody agrees to come back for the Q&A. And if memory serves, because I remember looking forward to, because he, so he buries himself in roles, but um, I don't believe he came backstage that year. That's a shame. Well, you did get, did you get Leo in uh, 2015? Finally yeah. got his, he, he got was his very Oscar. gracious. He's very gracious. Um, you know, he talked, he talked about the project and you just, um, cause you think these people, you know, they're kind of like Kings of the world in certain senses to, to use a certain phrase of, of film history. But he was also you know, talking about that project for Revenant. He was talking about, um, I just remember him just talking about the experience of making the movie. And I think, you know, and not taking anything for granted, including that Oscar. And, and I think he talked a little bit about his activism in the world. I mean, he wasn't using it as a platform, but he, it seemed, he seemed like a fairly well-rounded guy. Those few moments I got to listen to him backstage. I mean, you know. For a guy that was him that had so much going on, he seemed, you know, fairly, fairly grounded and present. And then I guess the last one that I'll do for this rapid fire is this yeah. year, everybody seemed very taken with, with Bong Joon-ho. How did, how is he? Yes. In the, in the yes. Background? That was great. Um, well, because he'd won so much, that was another, he did come backstage with his translator and the translator, like her star kind of took off. Because, you know, he'd won Best International Film, not Foreign Language anymore, right? And then, of course, obviously Best Picture. So what they did, what happens is if you, sometimes they'll hold somebody who's nominated in multiple categories, 
until they until the last of their categories and then they'll have them like if they so you're asking somebody questions like who's who's one in three categories you know so so that really is a dog pile and i i i did not get a question i had a question about the product i did have a below the line question but i had very low odds of getting called on and sure enough did not get called on but um i had but i had to take my win in the deacons category you know you have to take it where you can get it but it was great to listen to and somebody other uh, reporters or you know, writers who had traveled with parasite during the um festival season had come to know his translator and somebody had asked asked him backstage now that he spent so much time like so many weeks or months when it's like what was how did how did he discover the translator like how did she come and is he going to let her like is she is, is he and they, the joke was is, is he going to let her start pitching movie ideas to him now and he laughed but then he said that she actually is working on a script i guess what happened is when he when parasite so he advertised in korea and for somebody who knew english and that she was a film like a, not not a student exactly but you know new to the film industry and new english and she got the job and so now because of having the job she has now the ear the eye and the ear of this internationally renowned director but that all came not that he wasn't thinking to do that anyway but it sort of came to light during the q and a in the press room so as, as and it was wonderful talking to him but i would say the thing that was new or maybe most surprising was sort of the arrival of his translator as kind of a, a budding star in the you know in the international film community that's really cool that's really cool so so obviously the Oscars has been a show that's been in kind of a state of semi-crisis for yep. a little yep. bit of time now. We've obviously all now been thrust into enormous uncertainty and the show has been postponed until at least April. But right. even looking past, you know, coronavirus, hopefully at some point, what right. what do you make kind of as somebody who's who's behind the scenes every year? What is your sense of of where the Oscars is is going, and and I guess what have what have you observed, and 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 what does it maybe make you feel about how this show may evolve over the coming coming years? Well, that's the thing. I mean, just my own personal soapbox. I mean, now that it, ABC seems to rely on it for you know, which ABC, which is to say Disney, right? So it's now it, it's sort of a component of Disney's television broadcasting schedule and what does that mean for the pressure on the show to try and bring in all these demographics and all these people are so diverse like people are seeing so there's so much content that it's not like like when i was coming of age i mean there was a much smaller handful of movies to go see in theaters i mean obviously all of this dates me but i have you know bona fide gray in my whiskers so i i guess i can stand to be dated because that's part of but um, you know you only see movies in theaters and you didn't. This is even before there was VHS. I mean, let alone DVDs and streaming. So, and there were fewer of them. So, and you would go see these movies, and everybody kind of knew what was going on. And now there's there's content everywhere. And how do you even know? I mean, like this year, they're they're allowing streamed content because nobody can get to a physical theater to qualify. But is that is that the camel's nose under the tent, as the saying goes? I mean, can mm -hmm. they ever go back and disallow streaming content? And what is it? And what is the difference anymore between an Oscar and an Emmy? If Netflix or Amazon can win either of those, you know, sometimes for the same show. I mean, 
So these are all good questions that have to be answered. Also in the acting category, motion cap and green screen performances. I was at the VES Awards uh, when, um, you know, the Planet of the Apes reboot came out. And I happened to be sitting next to Andy Serkis, one table away, who had played Caesar that year. And I told him I thought he'd gotten robbed by not being nominated for an acting performance. And he thanked me, you know, and we talked a bit. And because um, I'd interviewed, I'd done an interview with uh, Joe Terry, who who ran the visual effects studio for Wet House. And so, so those kinds of things, like why shouldn't Andy Serkis be a legitimate acting nominee, even if he's doing a mocap performance? And as technology changes, what? How are we even going to figure out how to keep defining categories? I mean, what does it mean to be a cinematographer on on the Jungle Book, like? Caleb Deschanel or, or Rob Legato, who's also a cinematographer, also a visual effects guy. Who, I mean, and you're, if you're rendering, when you're rendered a movie, is that the same thing as being a cinematographer on a, where you're shooting a movie? And so, uh, so all these questions, they're going to get more confounding in addition to the, the artifact, if you will, of the broadcast itself, which clearly is not appealing to as wide a demographic as they would like no matter what kind of hokey dance numbers or comedy numbers or whether they have hosts or go hostless. And I think, again, this is me being like maybe an older sort of crankier film fan, but I think they should just quit trying to make money off it because since I'm seeing what I think is so much more of an interesting Oscars backstage for people who genuinely, such as yourself and your, you know, people listening, people who genuinely are passionate about film and what it means to them, I say you just, you know, quit cutting people off with the band. Just have more of a, like, stream it or something. Have a show mm. where, where the winners can, they can talk and expand. They can share observations and, you know, you make it looser and, and you people can talk about their craft and maybe the nominees can talk to the winner. And just have it being more of like a symposium, an awards night symposium with these really interesting, talented people kind of holding forth. To me, to me, anyway, that sounds far more interesting than having to suffer through another, you know, badly staged dance number. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see um, to see where it goes. But God, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. I'm going to have to, I don't know, do this podcast for another a hundred years, and then maybe I can try <laughs> to sneak into the into the bathroom or something, you know, through the back door. Um, this is great. No, this is awesome. I mean, I, I appreciate you taking some time to share some of these behind the scenes experiences. Oh, it's been fun. And actually, thank you for, I mean, there's, there's so many that I'm glad you kind of did lightning rounds and called me like, cause you would say a specific name and I'd say, Oh, right. Oh yeah, that's right. Thanks again, Mark. Really, really appreciate that. Oh, sure. Jake.